0: Go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 23 is where we're at today. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Or you can also open up your smartphone or tablet to the UVersion Bible app and follow along there as well. The scriptures are there. The uh, Bible, the, the scripture references, some notes, things like that are all, all in there. And then I don't, know, I don't know if you knew this about the YouVersion Bible app, but you can actually save the event for your future reference, you can look back at it, see the notes and, and things that you put in there as you take notes in the app as well. first Samuel chapter twenty three verses fourteen through twenty nine is where we're at together today. My name is Cody. I'm the pastor here at Redemption. It's my privilege and honor to serve you in the scriptures. Uh, it's a, a great thing uh, for us to be able to open God's word and to study it and to look in it. We're in the middle of a series through the book of 1 Samuel. It's part of the DNA of who we are here at Redemption. We just travel through books of the Bible. Uh, we, every week you're going to hear the words, open your Bible too. And if you don't hear that, then you need to boycott and you need to complain and you need to say, what is wrong with our church? Okay. Open your Bibles too. It needs to be the primary thing that you hear. And then we're going to go through large sections of the Bible together. That's, you need to hear God's word, not my word. You need to hear God's thoughts, not my thoughts. Okay. And so that's really what we're going to be doing. And it's important for you to get your eyes on the scriptures so that you can see that I'm not pulling a rabbit out of, hat, right? If you ever sit in a sermon and you're like, wow, I wonder where he came up with that, leave the church. That is not a good sign, okay? If, if you just, if you're like, I don't understand, how did that happen? That, that was like magic. That's, that is not, that's not somewhere where you need to be. That, that you should clearly see, oh, it says that in the scriptures, all right? So get your eyes on the scriptures that way. All right, First Samuel chapter 23 verses 14 through 29. My wife, Micah, and I, We decided recently to get a a new puppy. Anybody had that pleasure? (laughs) Getting a puppy? Yeah. Um, There's some parts that are fun and awesome and there's other parts where you're like, why did I decide to go back to having a baby? Like, why did I do that? I'm in my 40s, my kids are all teenagers, I don't want to have a baby again. And so we have this, this puppy. She's actually our second dog. Uh, and both of the dogs that we have are uh, Yorkie Shih Tzus. Uh, so that means they're really small. Uh, they, they will never get above five pounds. Uh, and they're full of energy. And they run around. They're also very loving, very cuddly uh, kind of a dog. Uh, and so, so we, we just love them. We, we like them. Our first dog, we, we chose to name it Wicket. Uh, because it looked like that little Ewok from Star Wars. And so we're like, that's, that's your name. And so we decided to stick with the Star Wars theme. The new puppy is black and brown, so we named it, obviously, Chewbacca. Uh, and so it looks like a tiny teddy bear version of Chewbacca, uh, basically. So, uh, you know, we call her Chewie for short. One day I was taking the trash out, and uh, the, our trash is located uh, kind of outside of our garage through the back of the house. And so I went, I went through the garage, and I... Uh, go out to the trash can. I, I throw the trash away. Well, as soon as I walk out of the door, Chewy is out in the backyard because one of our girls is taking her out to go to the bathroom or something. And so, uh, you know, she sees me and she's just, she thinks I'm, you know, I'm a murderer or something. So she's barking at me while I throw the trash away and I'm, I'm like, oh, there's it's very clear she knows who I am, right? Like she sees me every day. And so I decide I'm going to play with her by stalking her like I'm some sort of evil predator, right? So I put my hands up and I start stalking her and she's barking even louder and I think she's playing with me so I get closer and closer. Well, she runs up the stairs toward our uh, sliding glass door and she's standing on this little like landing that's our, our back patio I guess and uh, she's barking at me and as I get to the stairs, she she freaks out she jumps about three feet in the air which for a dog that's about two inches tall that's a long way uh, she jumps three feet in the air smashes into the sliding glass door to try to get inside and something falls out of her tail section midair like she's i literally scared the crap out of this little dog poor Chewy. Sometimes you and I can feel backed into corners, can't we? We feel like th- there's a moment where we're backed into a corner, where where there's there there's we're trapped, and we can feel like little Chewy and get this the crap scared out of us. And here's what I want to say: instead of freaking out, we need to reach out to the Lord. Right? That that's that's really what's happened. So right here in 1 Samuel 23, David's trapped; he's backed into a corner, and. He's going to reach out to the Lord. So here's our big idea this morning as we look at 1 Samuel 23, 14 through 29. Submission to the will of God is the safest place to be when the enemy attacks. Submission to the will of God is the safest place to be when the enemy attacks. Let's read this section together, 14 through 29, and then we'll go back through and break it down. First Samuel twenty three fourteen says this, And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul, Gibeah, uh, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds in the woods in the hill of Achilla, which is uh, on the south of Jeshimon, so uh, excuse me, verse twenty. Now, therefore, O King, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the hand, uh, into the king's hand. And Saul said, "Blessed are you of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Please go and find out for sure and see the place where his hideout is, and who he is. Who, who has seen him there? For I'm told he's very crafty. See, therefore, and take." Knowledge uh, of all his lurking, all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with certainty, and I will go with you. And it shall be, if he is in the land, that I will I will search for him uh, thoroughly. Uh, excuse me, throughout all the clans of Judah. So they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the uh, plain of the wilderness of Jeshimon. And when Saul and his men went to seek him. They told David, therefore, he went down to the rock uh, and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. Then Saul, uh, and when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Then Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, hurry, come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines, so they called that place the Rock of Escape. Then David went up from there and dwelt in the strongholds of uh, at Engedi. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today thanking you for your word. God, we thank you for the opportunity to open it. We thank you for the chance to study it. We thank you for the way that you reveal yourself to us through your scriptures. And God, we pray that you would help us to see... This as so much more than just an old story about some guy in a faraway place. But instead, Lord, we would see our relationship with you. We would see the way that you are intervening in our lives. And we would trust you and hope in you and glorify you. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today as we look at 1 Samuel 23, 14-29, we're going to break it down into three different parts. The first part, verses 14-18, through 18, spiritual connection. The second part, 19 through 23, spiritual presentation. And then the third part, 24 through 29, spiritual intervention. Now, before we jump into it, one of the best disciplines that you and I can develop is the ability to see spiritually. That, That when we're able to do this, we're able to see beyond just the tangible things that we have in our lives, and we're able to see the real issue and fight the real fight here's the truth here's the reality the thing beneath the thing is the real thing have you found that to be true that there's some something happening in life there's this physical thing taking place in life and everyone's focused on that but there's actually something else happening below the surface that's the real issue I'll use something really, uh, this isn't in my notes, just kind of something that's a great illustration that's coming to me in this moment. There's a very real issue taking place in our world right now in Afghanistan, right? There's a very real thing happening in Afghanistan where uh, our, our military has pulled out and there is a crisis. Why? Because a terrorist organization has come in to do heinous things, murdering people and much, uh, and much more. See, the thing is that the world right now was looking at this as a political issue. And maybe you've been looking at it as a political issue. Our president did the wrong thing. Our president did the right thing the wrong way. Our president is awesome. I don't know where you fit on the spectrum of crazy. But the issue is <laughs> <laughs> that, that we tend to look at this and see it purely from the tangible. It, it's, this is not a political issue. This is a spiritual issue. And when we see it as a spiritual issue, we see it correctly. You see, the issue is not whether or not America has troops in a certain place. The issue is there are evil freaking people that will murder and rape and pillage. That's the problem. Do, do you see that? Do you understand that? Now, yes, there is an issue in terms of what we do and how we do it and, and all those things. But the issue beneath the issue is the real issue, it's a spiritual issue. Muslims don't believe in Jesus, and therefore they do heinous things. That's really what it comes down to. They, if you actually read what Muhammad said, the Taliban does exactly what Muhammad taught. And so the, the problem is there's an issue below, below the issue, and if we're, not, if we're not careful, we get distracted with the wrong things, right? And so that's, that's really the biggest thing. And, and so here's, here's the, one of the big spiritual realities that you and I have got to grasp. You have a real enemy who really hates you, and is really stalking you to take you out. That, that's a spiritual truth that you've got, to, you've got to see. And if you don't see that, then you're not going to see life the way that it actually is. You're going to be chasing the wrong things. Um, here's what it says in 1 Peter 5.8. It says, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour this is a spiritual truth. This is a spiritual reality. There's an enemy stalking you, pursuing you, after you all the time. And I don't know how much you know about lions, but here's, a, here's something that you can see real easy on the Discovery Channel. The way that lions hunt is they hide in the bushes, right? You don't even know that they're there because they stay so still and they move so, uh, so stealthily. And then in a moment, they spring from their hiding place in order to attack their, uh, their prey. You see, the best spiritual guard for you and me is to remain perpetually in God's will because we have no idea when the enemy's attack is going to come. You don't know if the enemy's attack is going to be in the next few minutes. You don't know if it's going to be as soon as you leave this place. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but the enemy is looking to pounce upon you at all times, You see, if you're perpetually in God's will, then it won't matter when the enemy attacks or how the enemy comes. You'll be able to withstand it by the grace of God. So let's look at this first piece together, uh, this spiritual connection in verses 14 through 18. Look back at verse 14, it says this, And David stayed in the strongholds uh, in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. So David here, as, we, as we're continuing to pursue this storyline, previously he was in a city named Keilah. He saves the city. God tells David, hey, if you stay there, then uh, Saul is going to come and the people are going to deliver you over. So he leaves. And we're told that he goes out into the wilderness and he just stays in various strongholds. And he ends up in this place called uh, Ziph, all right, Uh, in in this area. Now, a stronghold, when you read the word stronghold, essentially what that is, is it's a natural place in the land that would provide some sort of cover or it would provide a tactical advantage. And so that's what he's constantly looking for as he's moving. Maybe it's a cave, maybe it's a high uh, hill with a a flat area on top or something where they can You know, gather together and uh, stay sort of hidden, that kind of a thing. And in this, David has two primary objectives in doing this. Number one, he wants to obey the command of God given to him by the prophet Gad back in the uh, previous chapter to stay in Judah. Remember that? God said to David, don't stay out here, outside of uh, outside the land, just in these strongholds away. Go back to the land of Judah. So David's trying to honor that. He's trying to obey that. And secondly, he's trying to avoid uh, being uh, uh, under the attack of uh, Saul. He's trying to just avoid conflict with Saul at all costs. You see, here's the truth. Obedience to God will often come at a cost to you. If you're going to obey the Lord, there's gonna be some sort of price that needs to be paid. And here, the price that's being paid for David to obey God is he's, he can't have comfort. He, he can't have peace. He can't live in his, in his home. He can't uh, be with his wife. He can't participate in the things of life that are just normal for everybody else. He has to be exiled. He has to live out in the wilderness and be in, under this constant attack from Saul. You see, living this way was to be in a perpetual state of danger. He didn't know when the enemy was going to attack. He knew that Saul was pursuing him, but he had no idea where the attack was going to come from or how it was going to come. So he's in a perpetual state of danger, but he's also in a perpetual state of humility because he has to trust that God is going to come through for him. That God is going to be the one who takes care of him. Now, he goes to this place, we see there in verse 14, Ziph. Now, Ziph is about 30 miles directly south of Jerusalem. And when you read the phrase mountains in here and forest, don't think the Rocky Mountains, okay? Um, Just, just you know when you're thinking about israel uh it's small and everything's miniaturized okay so when it says mountain it's kind of a hill all right it's like a big hill uh that's that's pretty much it and and this particular area it's very desolate it's like a it's like a desert forest if you know what that would look like sort of like the trees aren't really trees the way you would think of trees it's like large shrubs that are the size of trees uh in the desert it's pretty desolate People who go here think, how in the world did David survive out in this area, in this region? And now, while David is living on the run, uh, he's hunting him, uh, Saul is hunting him every day. You see that there in verse 14? Every, Every day. Saul sought him every single day. There's this relentless pursuit of an obsessed madman coming against David. And it's in this state where David is on the run, where he's being hunted, he's in a desolate wilderness that God does something amazing. Look at verse 16. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David. It's in this moment, it's at this time, it's in this state of things within the heart and mind of David that God stirs up Jonathan's heart and mind to go visit his friend. Proverbs 17:17 17, 17 says this: A friend is always loyal and a brother is born to help in time of need. You see, see, what Proverbs is talking about is this relationship that David and Jonathan share. It's this type of friendship that is so close that it goes far beyond any kind of blood relationship that you could ever have. More deep than any kind of brother that David could ever have is this deep friendship that that Jonathan and David share. And Jonathan, he seems to, if you notice it, it says that he just arose and he went to David in the woods. It seemed, we almost can pass over this. It's like Jonathan just found him real easy. John, Jonathan goes to find David and just finds him almost automatically. Saul is hunting for him every single day and can't find him. That means either, one, David's really bad at hide and seek and God, God's blinded Saul really well or two, David is awesome at hiding and God led Jonathan right there. Either way, it doesn't matter. It's God's grace. God is graciously moving in this moment. That something that we could just see as a normal happenstance, normal thing, is is actually the grace of God. And I wonder how often, how many times in our lives do we mistake things as just sort of the normal things of life, the stuff that just happens, and and we think, oh, it's so nice that that worked out. But it was actually God's hand moving in our behalf. It was actually God's grace coming through for us in tremendous ways that that we, we wouldn't have had otherwise. You see, Jonathan comes to David with a single purpose. With a single heart and a single mind. Do you see it there? In verse 16. He says he comes to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. What what a tremendous statement. What What an amazing phrase. Now think about Jonathan. Think about where he's at. There's a whole lot that Jonathan can't do. Jonathan is the son of Saul. He is the crown prince, if you want to say it that way. He's the one who's next in line for the throne. He is one of the the top generals in the military of Saul. He is uh, expected to live and do and and be in a certain kind of a way. And so there's a lot that Jonathan can't do. Jonathan can't join David. Jonathan can't rescue David. Jonathan can't stop Saul There's a lot that he can't do, but there's something vital and significant that Jonathan can do. And the only reason that Jonathan's aware of this reality is because he's looking at it spiritually. That Jonathan is spiritually connected. He's not looking at this from purely the physical. He's not just looking at this in terms of, my dad's lost his mind and is hunting my best friend. This is crazy. He's looking at it from a spiritual perspective. And so because he is, he acts in a spiritual kind of a way. He makes this spiritual connection. You see, Jonathan can see the reality isn't about, that that this whole situation, it's not about David and Saul the situation is about David and God. That's what this situation really is about. And so what does Jonathan do? He goes to David not to bash Saul, not to say this is a terrible situation, not to to pout and gripe and moan with David. No, he goes with a singular purpose to strengthen David's hand in the Lord. You see, This is where Jonathan's focus is at. John Corson, in his uh, application commentary, says this. Jonathan doesn't wring his hands in anxiety, but strengthens David's hand in God. Lots of people will worry with you, but those aren't the people you need. You need people who will strengthen your hand in God. There's no shortage of people who will complain and worry and fret and throw their hands up. Those people, they're just all over the place. But what you need to find are people who will strengthen your hand in the Lord. People who will come and they will encourage you and they will lift you high and they will will honor the Lord uh, with you. And so what does Jonathan do? How exactly does he do this? You ever wonder that? I mean, that's a cool phrase, but what does it mean? What exactly does that look like? What exactly does it mean for him to strengthen his hand in the Lord? Well, uh, what's, what Jonathan doesn't do is he doesn't spit out empty platitudes and vla- vague what-ifs, right? He doesn't come to David and say, you know, David, God gives his toughest battles to his toughest warriors. Anybody ever said that to you? You ever just want to punch him in the mouth when they say that? Like, that doesn't help. <laughs> Don't say that stuff. Don't say that nonsense to people. That That is not helpful. Uh, just, just say, well, you know what? You know what, uh, David here you just need to have good vibes and have a positive view and that'll just make everything better. That's just dumb. That's just not, that is not helpful. When people say that stuff, it just doesn't help. And the reason that people say that is because they want to just like fill the void of the awkward silence. They're not sure what to say. And and here's just a quick tip. If someone is hurting, if someone's in pain, if someone's in the middle of a trial and you don't know what to say, you know what the best thing to say is? Nothing, right, like just zip it, just say nothing, right? The best thing you can do is be there. There's a ministry of presence, just being with them. You don't need to have all the answers. You don't need to have it all fixed. You don't need to be able to to say the thing that's gonna put everything together. Don't worry about that. If God wants you to say something like that, he'll put it in your heart and in your mind to minister to them, but just be there. Just have a ministry of presence. Empty, vague platitudes don't do anything for people. But Jonathan does have some things to say. And what Jonathan does is he calls David out of fear and into faith by doing this. He lifts uh, David's eyes from his situation into the Lord. How do we know that? How do we know what, or what Jonathan said? Well, it's written, verse 17. Look at verse 17. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. See, Jonathan purposefully pulls David out of this. And and the way he does pull David out of this fear and to faith is with four things. Four parts to Jonathan's encouragement. Number one, I believe that right here in this moment, the first thing that he he does is he's speaking prophecy. Notice he says there, my father won't find you. Uh, This is absolutely true. As you read through the narrative of 1 Samuel, as we're continuing through it, what you'll find is that Saul never finds David. It never happens. And so God is using, uh, using Jonathan in this moment to speak a word of prophecy to him. He won't find you. Secondly, he's reminding David of the truth of God's word. What has God said to you? What has God's promise to you? And he's reminding him. Remember, Remember David, remember that day back when you were out in the field and then And then Samuel throws a feast and your dad calls you from the field and you show up and everyone's there and you're not sure what's going on. And then Samuel pours this entire horn of oil all over you and it's running down and he anoints you as the next king of Israel. Do you remember that moment? Do you remember when God spoke so clearly that you just knew that the Lord was giving you this direction? And now it looks like all of that could fall apart and it looks like there's enemies coming to take that away and you're not sure how it's all gonna happen and it looks like this is just crazy and what kind of a king lives in a cave in the desert? This is insane. Don't forget the promise of the Lord. Don't forget that God is, is coming through for you. Don't forget that just because you can't see it today doesn't mean it's not gonna happen. And then thirdly, not only prophecy in this reminding, but he also points him to reality. My dad even knows this. It's so true that my dad knows this, which is why he's crazy and he's chasing after you. And then the fourth thing that he says is he gives David hope. He says, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Now, it's interesting that when he says this, that's the one part of this that doesn't come true. Jonathan will not be with David. In fact, as they part ways from one another right here, this will be the final time they see one another. This is it. In a few chapters, Jonathan dies in battle, and David and Jonathan never see each other before then. It's, it's sort of a, a, a joy-filled and sorrow-filled parting. They don't know it. They have no idea they'll never see each other again, but we do as we read, read ahead and we read through. You see, one of the things I think that's interesting, uh, that's the drums. Mute the drums. One of the things that is interesting in this is that... Um, God is using Jonathan to speak to David right in this tremendous way and in this he uses him in a number of ways but there's also wrapped up in with what God is speaking something that Jonathan wants you see that see how there's this ability to have things mixed together there's this ability for God to speak but also for the person that God is using to have their own things their own thoughts their own words mixed in there because this is his hope it doesn't mean it's going to happen it actually never will happen it never will take place kind of an interesting thing that takes place here now in verse 18 David and Jonathan they renew their covenant to one another see that there so the two of them made a covenant before the Lord the the covenant the terms of the covenant is verse 17 this is this is what they're saying David you're gonna be king and I'm gonna serve with you that's their covenant it goes back to chapter 18 verse 3 the first time they made this covenant they're just renewing the same covenant that they made before in recognition of David as king, and then they part ways. They see they, they have this time where they'll never see one another again. Not only do we see the spiritual connection, but we also see spiritual presentation in verses 19 through 23. Verse 19 says, This: then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is David not hiding in the strongholds in the woods and the hill of Achilah? Which is on the south of Jeshimon. Now, therefore, O King, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the into the king's hand. The scene shifts here from this incredible moment of spiritual strengthening to this treacherous moment of spiritual betrayal. See that. All in a moment, it just shifts. The whole tone takes a different turn. And the men in the nearby city of Ziph discover that David is there. And so what they decide is that they have this inside information about the location of David because he's out in the wilderness near their city. And so they decide, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go tell Saul so we can get in his good graces. You see, Saul is a man of the flesh, and so he has no shortage of fleshly, selfish, manipulative, deceptive, betraying kinds of people flooding to him at all times. It's just the kind of man that he is, and because that's the kind of man he is, those are the kind of people that surround him. Those are the kind of people that are always near to him. John Maxwell, in his book, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, says this, in most situations, you draw people Uh, to you who possess the same qualities you do. That's the law of magnetism. Who you are is who you attract. So, So with that in mind, let me ask you a question. Are there a lot of crazy people in your life? Is there a lot of drama in your life? Maybe you can fill in the blank there. It's probably not them. It's probably you. If who you are is who you attract, then think about how does God need to transform me? God, how do you need to grow me? How do you need to mature me? How do you need to develop me? You see that the Ziphites saw David's oppression as their opportunity. And they're just like Saul. And, and because they're just like Saul, what do they do? They, they pursue they pursue Saul. And so they say in verse 20, O king, do you see that there? They come to him and they say, O king, come down. Now, now this O king, it's not just a phrase used in passing. This is actually a term of flattery as a means to gain favorites. To say, David has no legitimate claim to the throne. You are our only king. That's what they're saying. They're, they're making themselves an enemy of David doubly and they're making themselves an ally of Saul in this moment as well they're just trying to gain favor Warren Wiersbe says this leaders who enjoy flattery and praise and who encourage and reward associates who seek to only gratify their leaders ego can never build other leaders or accomplish the will of God to the glory of God David developed officers who were mighty men first Chronicles 21 second Samuel 24 but Saul attracted officers who were moral weaklings This is the kind of people they are. The Ziphites are rejecting God. They're rejecting his way in order to gain influence, position, power, favor, prominence. That's what they're aiming at. They they see it as a chance to to get a, a position in Saul's regime. So what is Saul's response? Look at there in verse 21. And Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord, for you've had compassion on me. What in the world is coming out of this guy's mouth? Saul's response is to present himself as a spiritual man. Right? That's what he does. This is laughable. It's crazy town. It's laughable. Something, this is something that he's been infatuated with though for pretty much his entire adult life. From the day that he was anointed as the first king of Israel, this is the way that he has thought. Remember in chapter 13, if you weren't with us there in chapter 13 verse nine, one of the things that Saul did was uh, he actually played the priest. That he was supposed to wait for Samuel to come and offer a sacrifice, but Samuel was delayed. He didn't show up in the time frame that Saul thought he should have. And so instead of waiting, he decides, I'm going to be the priest. And I'm going to offer the sacrifices. That, that was a, an overstep of his bounds. That's not something that Saul should have done. Saul is not the priest. He was the king. That was not his role. He should not have done it. And yet, he chose to do it anyway and so it's just this thing Saul looked at truly spiritual and godly men he and something about them just intrigued him he he just saw these these uh, people like Samuel and just he was intrigued by it and so he wanted the recognition that Samuel had without being the kind of man that Samuel was he wanted the recognition without having the substance think about this think about it this way only an insane person can say God bless you to the betrayers of an innocent man while they stab him in the back this is absolute craziness. This is absolute insanity. He the Lord bless you? Since when do you talk about God or have any concern with God blessing anything, Saul? This is not on his radar. This is not in his mind. This is absolute craziness. It is to see evil as good. That's what's happening with Saul. So he sounds spiritual. So if we, you know, if we try to sound spiritual or people try to sound spiritual or even say Christian phrases or go through religious motion or do religious activities, people do these things to try to prop them up thinking that that's a display of themselves as a good and righteous person. But none of those things can save you. Doing the right things, going through the right motions, attending church all the time, saying nice words, quoting Bible verses, uh, saying spiritual sounding phrases, none of that saves you. Jesus and his blood alone is what saves you. Now, all of that other stuff can flow out of it. Knowing the scriptures, saying the right things, being a part of the church, all that stuff can flow out of being in Christ, but it's no substitute for being in Christ. If your hope is church membership, if your hope is just being a nice person, if your hope is that someday when I get to heaven, the good's gonna outweigh the bad and I'm gonna tip the scales, then you are believing a lie. The truth is you need the blood of Jesus to forgive your sin. The truth is only the cross of Christ can make you whole with God. The stain that is on your soul can't be washed away by anything but the precious blood of Jesus. And so Saul, what does he do? Verse 22, he says, go find out for sure where he's at. Uh, and then, you know, come tell me. And then notice the end of verse 22. For I'm told he's crafty. He's very, he's very crafty. Saul, again, assigns his attributes. This is Saul. He's the one who's crafty, not David. Uh, and he assigns his attributes to David and misunderstands why God is, uh, or wh- while David is perpetually getting away. He thinks David's getting away because he's so crafty and he's just sneaky and he's just got all, he has all these really good, you know, insights and uh, he's always thinking one step ahead. What he's not seeing, what Saul is not seeing is that it's God's hand. And not David's cunning. God is protecting David. God is guiding David. God is giving David the insight. It's not his amazing cunning. David Guzik says it like this, I would much rather uh, have God be with me than be crafty. It's better to be blessed than smart. It's better to be blessed than talented. It's better to, to have goodness from the Lord than anything else. And that's what's been preserving David, not his own craftiness. It's God's hand. It's God's, God's intervention. It's just that David is seeking to just be in the will of God. He's trying to his best to just stay where God wants him to be, and as he stays there, God directs his path and blinds his enemy so that he is uh, kept on the path that God has for him. You see, when you fight against God and his will, it becomes impossible to think with wisdom or clarity, and that's where Saul is at. Saul is left to making up reasons for David to be so hard to find and so hard to kill. It couldn't be that God is with him. It's got to be something else. Thirdly and finally, not only a spiritual connection and a spiritual presentation as Saul presents himself as spiritual, but a spiritual intervention. Verse 24. So they arose and went to Ziph before Saul, but David and his men were in the wilderness of uh, Maon, in the plain plain in the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, therefore when he went down, uh, therefore he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. So David, he hears, he gets uh, uh, some intel from somewhere. I don't know if he's got spies out in the land or somebody hears about it or what happens, but somehow David hears that Saul finds out where he's at and he's on his way. And before Saul gets there, David goes to another area. And notice there it says, the rock. See that there? He went to the rock. It's just a well-known area there where everybody knew it was just this place called the, the rock out there. That, this well-known rock. Now, here's, the, here's what he does. He retreats. He gets away. And when he's overwhelmed and overrun, he has a rock that he runs to. And when we're overwhelmed and we're overrun, there's a rock that we can run to, Psalm 18.2, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my savior. God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me, and my place of safety. Is that, is that true? Can you say that of, of yourself? you think that way? Or is your own ingenuity your place of safety? Is your bank account your safety? Is some family member your safety? Or is it the Lord that's your rock? 1 Corinthians 10.4 says this, And all of them drank from the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Jesus is the rock. He is the one he was the rock of our salvation. He's our place of refuge. Will you run to him in the trial? Will you seek him in that difficulty? Will that pain drive you to Jesus? Will that trouble lead you to place your hope in the rock of your salvation? I hope it does. That's what God's using it for. God is using this pain to get us closer to Him. You wonder, why, is, why do things have to be so hard? Why does difficulty surround me? Why does it seem like it's always pursuing me? It's because God likes you. That's really what it comes down to. Because we tend to cry out to the Lord more when it hurts, don't we? We tend to cry out to God more when things are not going well, when things are hard, when things are difficult, when I, when I perceive that I need Him. Because when things are good, I sort of have this perception that I don't need God. It doesn't mean I need God any less. It just is this perception that I have that I don't need the Lord. And so God brings these things into our lives. He allows these things into our lives while they lead us back to him. So verse 29, uh, 26, Then Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul. For Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. Now again, the word mountain, don't think mountain the way that you are typically thinking of it. It's like a big hill with a huge rock that sticks out of the top of it. This is more like Castle Rock than Pikes Peak, okay? Does that, does that give you a, an idea of what we're talking about? So if you ever drive down to Castle Rock, you see that you know rock that's kind of outcropping there like that. It's more like that than it is like what we think of in terms of the mountains. And so as we're, as we're considering this, basically what's happening is David and his men are on one side, Saul and his men are on the other side, and they're sort of just going around this thing, never able to get to one another because David's trying to evade Saul. So Saul decides, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm done with this. I'm gonna take half my men, send them one way, I'm gonna take half my men and send them the other way, and we're just gonna do this sort of like a pincher move come around both sides and we'll trap him and he'll have nowhere to go and we'll, we'll have him. Saul has David trapped. He has him in this place where he can't evade. Even though he's trying his best, David's trying to get away. He, he, he's got nothing left to do. So what does he do? Well we actually know exactly what David did. It doesn't tell us here, but there's actually a place we can turn to. Psalm 54. Hold your place here. Turn to Psalm 54. I'm gonna read the whole psalm with you. It's not that it's not that long. It's only a few verses. But Psalm 54 is a, uh, an amazing psalm. It says in the beginning of it, in the, the prelude to it, it says to the chief musician with a stringed, with stringed instruments, a contemplation of David, listen, when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, Is David not hiding with us? So this is the context. When the Ziphites betray him and Saul is pursuing him and David is trying his best to get away, what does David do? He says this. Save me, O God, by your name and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God, and give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. Verse 6, I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of, the, out of all trouble and my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. You see, here in this, in this section, what does David do? Well, he cries out to God for help. That's what he does. He's not looking to his craftiness. He's not looking to his cunning. He's trying his very best to stay in the position of God's will, and he cries out to God for help. In verses 1 through C, one through 3, we see that he, he cries out to God because ungodly oppressors with murderous intent are encircling him, and he has no way of escape. But then notice there's a significant shift that takes place in verse 4. In verse 4, there's this important and significant thing that takes place where his focus goes away from them and on to the Lord. Do you see that? He says, God, you're gonna take care of it. You're gonna have your way. I trust in you. That, that we often get stuck on them and we've gotta get past them and get to the Lord. That's where everything takes, pl- takes off. That's where everything shifts. No longer do we see them, but we see the Lord. And the, the rest of this, in verses six and seven, is, is all uh, about the result of a right focus. The, the result of a right focus, and focusing on the Lord, is a heart filled with hopeful praise. When your eyes are on the Lord, well, the, the way the scriptures say it is this, magnify the Lord with me. To magnify God is to, is to, the word magnify is to make something bigger. Now let me ask you, can we make God bigger? No, right, we can't make God bigger. He already is as big as he is. But magnifying is, is, my, is my perception, To magnify the Lord is to see Him as bigger. And when we magnify the Lord, then then all of a sudden, all of the cares and worries and problems that we have, they they find their right place. They're not as big. But when we magnify our issue, when our focus is on our problem, when our focus is on the difficulty, when our focus is on the pain, we magnify that, we can't see the Lord. That, That when you're focused on something, you're also not focused on everything else. If if you are looking at me, you're also not looking at anything else. Does that make sense? You have to mutually decide, mutually exclusively decide not to look at other things. And so when we look at the Lord, when we magnify the Lord, when our sight is fixed upon Him, then everything else finds its right place, and hopeful praise is the result. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 23. We'll finish up here. See, verse 27 David is encircled. David is surrounded. He cries out to the Lord for help. And then look at what happens in verse 27. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. So they, so they called the place, the rock of escape. Then David went up from there and dwelt in the strongholds at in Gedi. And in all of the sudden kind of a way, this messenger shows up calling Saul off of this uh, pursuit of David, and onto the fight of some invading Philistines, when David had no way of rescuing himself, God had a way that David could never have asked for. He could never have thought of, "Hey, God, you know what? Um, uh, I just." I think it would be great if at this moment you would send in some invading Philistines and you would put them in this particular place right at this exact time and then that you would send this messenger and he would come. I mean, think about all the details that have to precisely go into place. God had to put the thought into the Philistines' mind to get to uh, the right place in order to, to have this attack to come. The messenger had to run and to get to Saul at the right time. What if the guy decided, you know what, I'm just kind of tired, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a nap and he doesn't get there. Or he takes just an extra long lunch break or something and and just doesn't make it to Saul in this moment. It's over for David. God had to orchestrate so many things in a particular order in order to get this result that it's absolutely tremendous. You see, God is at work even when you may not see it. Even when you may not perceive it, even when you may not know, here's how David Guzik says it God's deliverance is not based on your figuring it out. It's based on his power and his goodness. The bottom line of it all is that we can trust him even when we can't figure it out. We can trust him. God will often back you into corners of impossible situations so that when he comes through, it's unmistakable that it was him. There's no other way to explain it. God came through. Now, as we, as we consider this section, I just want to conclude with this thought, that there's a critical moment in this section that we've looked at together today. And, and it, it, uh, the critical moment that I see in this section is that the time when Jonathan came to encourage David. And if there's one thing that I could do for you today, it would, be that, it would be that I would ask that you let me be Jonathan to you. Let me remind you that God is for you. Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten that God is for you? That God is, he's, he's not on your side, he's allowed you to be on his side. Does that make sense? He's brought you in to his family. He is so for you that he gave up everything to take your broken relationship with him and make it whole. That's how for you God is. That, that he is so for you that he doesn't just make the relationship right, he adopts you into his family as his own child. What a tremendous thing. That's that how for you that God is. That God is so for you that He pays for your sin with His own blood. That is how for you that God is. That God is so for you that when He adopts you in His family, it's not just that you get a dad, but you get a bunch of brothers and sisters as well. It's called the church. He puts you in a family of believers. God is so for you that he gives you his Holy Spirit to guide you, to teach you, to gift you, to empower you. That is how for you that God is. God is so for you that he has prepared an eternal heavenly home so that when you breathe your last year, there is a future and a hope that for you in Christ, the best is always yet to come. There is always a bright tomorrow. There is always a future and a hope. And I don't know what kind of problems you're facing or what kind of enemies are gathering or what kind of issues are looming, but I do know this, God is for you. That God is so for you and you can trust him, but it all starts with asking Jesus to forgive your sin, to to bring you into that right relationship, that you recognize his blood was for you. And that you align yourself being in the will of God. And if there's anything I could ask of you, if there's anything I could do for you, it's to be Jonathan for you. If there's anything I could ask of you, it's that you would be Jonathan to somebody else. It's that you would somehow say, God, how can you use me to be an encouragement and build somebody else up? You see, God's gonna put people in your path who need encouragement. They don't need an empty platitude. Don't tell them stuff like God gives his strongest battles to his strongest warriors. That's just dumb. Nobody needs to hear that. Tell them about the promises of the Lord. Tell them about the strength in God's word that can be found. Tell them, tell them how you want to strengthen their hands in the Lord. Are you willing to be used by God to do this? I hope you are, because our, word, our world needs more of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word today. God, we thank you for the opportunity to open it, to see it, to study it. We pray that, God, you would help us to hope in and trust in you and you alone, to rest in the truth and reality that you are for us. God, it sounds crazy to even say because if if we're honest, we know ourselves and we know how broken we are and yet by your grace, God, by your blood, Jesus, you're able to, to make us whole, to redeem us, to cause us to be something different, something more than what we are on our own. So Lord, we thank you that you are able to save, that you're mighty to save. We pray that you're also able to use us, and we pray that you would. God, help us to not just receive your encouragement, but to be dispensers of it as well. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.